0: Welcome back to the Rights and Liberties podcast, where we are discussing the Federalist Papers. Today, we are talking about Federalist 60. We usually begin these podcasts with three big ideas concerning the S.A.N.D. Review. Here are three big ideas about Federalist 60. Big Idea 1. In Federalist 60, Hamilton addressed the potential danger of the federal government regulating elections on its own without input from the states. Though he denied that such a danger should be a matter of great concern, consideration of the possibility of such regulation led Hamilton to think about potential motivations for this regulation. Big Idea 2 focuses on one of those potential motivations, which he identified with reference to the struggle for priority among differing economic interests in society. Big Idea 3 focuses on another motivation, which he described in terms of a charge that the Constitution would favor, quote, the wealthy and the well-born, end quote. So with Big Idea 1, we focus on a main question of Federalist 60. What dangers would attend to the federal government regulating elections on its own without the participation of state governments? Hamilton put the question this way, quoting Hamilton here, quote, We have seen that an uncontrollable power over the elections of the federal government could not, without hazard, be committed to the state legislatures. Let us now see what would be the danger on the other side, that is, from confiding the ultimate right of regulating its own elections to the Union itself." End quote. The first of these two sentences referred to his argument in Federalist 59, the second to the question addressed in Federalist 60. In thinking through the question of the potential regulation of elections by the federal government alone, Hamilton considered potential methods and motivations. He rejected the idea that this might be used, quote, for the exclusion of any state from its share in the representation, end quote. In addition, he rejected the idea that this regulation might be used to, quote, promote the election of some favorite class of men in exclusion of others by confining the places of election of particular districts and rendering it impracticable to the citizens at large to partake in the choice, end quote. Interestingly, Hamilton did not rule out completely the possibility of restrictions of the right to vote. I'm quoting Hamilton here quote, It is not difficult to conceive that this characteristic right of freedom may, in certain turbulent and factious seasons, be violated in respect to a particular class of citizens by a victorious and overbearing majority, but that so fundamental a privilege, in a country so situated and enlightened, should be invaded to the prejudice of the great mass of the people by the deliberate policy of the government without occasioning a popular revolution is altogether inconceivable and incredible." End quote. There is a significant amount to interpret in this passage about the right to vote. It looks as if there are three relevant distinctions active here. A temporal distinction, thinking about the reference to, quote, turbulent and factious seasons, end quote. A numerical distinction, pointing to the difference between a, quote, particular class of citizens, end quote, and the, quote, great mass of the people, end quote. And perhaps a distinction with respect to legitimacy between the actions of a, quote, victorious and overbearing majority, end quote, and the, quote, deliberate policy of the government, end quote. Much of what I just pointed to is a matter of inference rather than very clear claims. But it does seem that Hamilton is arguing against the idea that a large-scale deprivation of the right of citizens across the USA to vote as a matter of deliberate and long-term policy instituted by the federal government would occur, even if short-term and perhaps more local violations of the rights of smaller groups of citizens to vote might occur. Hamilton offered other reasons to think that the federal government would not seek exclusive control of the time, place, and manner of elections. The very diversity of ways of life and interests in the USA, so noteworthy a fact to those defending the Constitution, once again served for Hamilton as a reason to not be overly concerned about the potential for unjust consolidation of control at the national level, because there would be limited ground for that agreement which would be necessary for such consolidation. Then, too, the composite character of the federal government would tend against such consolidation in the realm of the mechanics of election in large part because the mechanics of election differed so, taking into account the House of Representatives, the Senate, and the presidency. So that is big idea one. Hamilton, after considering the issue, asserted that there would be no general danger of the federal government attempting to regulate elections on its own to the exclusion of state governments. But what might motivate an attempt to exercise exclusive control over elections by the federal government anyway? Hamilton's consideration of this question will inform Big Ideas 2 and 3 in this podcast, quoting Hamilton here. Quote, But what is to be the object of this capricious partiality in the national councils? Is it to be exercised in a discrimination between the different departments of industry, or between the different kinds of property, or between the different degrees of property? Will it lean in favor of the landed interest, or the moneyed interest, or the mercantile interest, or the manufacturing interest? or, to speak in the fashionable language of the adversaries to the Constitution, would court the elevation of, quote, the wealthy and the well-born, end quote, to the exclusion and debasement of all the rest of society, end quote. First, Big Idea 2. Hamilton focused on analysis of particular economic interests, pointing to the landed interest and the mercantile interest, as the two interests most likely to be implicated in such analysis, and engaged in extended commentary on what this might mean for the administration of elections. Though the commentary was lengthy, it is easy to summarize. Neither the landed interest nor the mercantile interest would be likely to seek capture or control over the mechanics of elections at the federal level. After observing briefly that such a phenomenon would be more likely at the state level than at the national level, Hamilton looked at each interest in turn. Quoting Hamilton here, It will be sufficient to remark First, that for the reasons elsewhere assigned, it is less likely that any decided partiality should prevail in the councils of the Union than in those of any of its members. Secondly, that there would be no temptation to violate the constitution in favor of the landed class, because that class would, in the natural course of things, enjoy as great a preponderancy as itself could desire. And thirdly, that men accustomed to investigate the sources of public prosperity upon a large scale must be too well convinced of the utility of commerce to be inclined to inflict upon it so deep a wound as would result from the entire exclusion of those who would best understand its interest from a share in the management of them. The importance of commerce, in the view of revenue alone, must effectually guard it against the enmity of a body which would be continually importuned in its favor by the urgent calls of public necessity. End quote. Big Idea 3 focuses on a theme common to critics of the Constitution, that it might serve persons or ends better described as aristocratic than democratic. Commenting on those critics, Hamilton claimed that, quote, they appear to have in view, as the objects of the preference with which they endeavor to alarm us, those whom they designate by the description of, quote, the wealthy and the well-born, end quote. These, it seems, are to be exalted to an odious preeminence over the rest of their fellow citizens. Hamilton pointed to the difficulties facing those that would attempt to ensure the supremacy of those so described through engineering laws about the time, place, or manner of elections, quoting Hamilton here But upon what principle is the discrimination of the places of election to be made in order to answer the purpose of the meditated preference? Are the wealthy and the well-born, as they are called, confined to particular spots in the several states? Have they, by some miraculous instinct or foresight, set apart in each of them a commonplace of residence? Are they only to be met with in the towns or the cities? Quote. It was true, of course, that there existed electoral laws benefiting the wealthy or well-born, but these were a function of state-level law. Quoting Hamilton once again, quote, The truth is, that there is no method of securing to the rich the preference apprehended but by prescribing qualifications of property either for those who may elect or be elected; but this forms no part of the power to be conferred upon the national government; its authority would be expressly restricted to the regulation of the times, the places, the manner of elections." Finally, Hamilton pointed to a somewhat different claim. Those that would be inclined to so violate the right to suffrage would be more likely to seize office more directly, rather than merely trying to increase their odds of being elected, I'm quoting Hamilton on this. Quote: With a disposition to invade the essential rights of the community, and with the means of gratifying that disposition, is it presumable that the persons who are actuated by it would amuse themselves on the ridiculous task of fabricating election laws for securing a preference to a favorite class of men? Would they not be likely to prefer a conduct better adapted to their own immediate aggrandizement? Would they not rather boldly resolve to perpetuate themselves in office by one decisive act of usurpation than to trust to precarious expedients, which, in spite of all the precautions that might accompany them, might terminate in the dismission, disgrace, and ruin of their authors? End quote. We often take a moment at the end of these podcasts to reflect on the relevance of the essay and under review to politics in the present and future. One thing about elections that has changed in the early 21st century has been methods of voting. It was long the case, of course, that the main method of voting was to show up at a particular polling place on election day. To be sure, it has been state-level rules that have led to variation among the states along these lines, but these changes are still relevant to Hamilton's argument. Indeed. One of the fears that Hamilton addressed, and dismissed, early in Federalist 60, was a concern about the likelihood that the location of a polling place might be used by the federal government, quote, to promote the election of some favorite class of men in exclusion of others by confining the places of election of particular districts and rendering it impracticable to the citizens at large to partake in the choice, end quote. One difference today, I think, is that when we think of challenges of access to voting, we often think not just with respect to where we vote, but when. So part of what has changed has been allowing voting on a more flexible timeline. But the rise of other techniques of voting, especially mail-in voting, seem to be aimed at addressing locational barriers to voting, as well as temporal ones. Though many people continue to vote in person, seems plausible to see voting in person becoming less prevalent over time, thus potentially making obsolete such concerns about the location of voting shaping access to the ballot. To be sure, one might say the opposite effect as well. If decreasing in-person voting leads to the use of fewer in-person polling places, then it seems reasonable to conclude that getting to the polling place would become less convenient for some citizens. Thank you for listening to the Rights and Liberties podcast. For more about the Sunwater Institute, please visit our website at sunwater.org.